Welcome to the Highland Sermon Podcast, where we share with you the sermons that are preached by the pastors at Highland Community Church in Coquito, Minnesota. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the podcast so that you will be notified when new episodes are available. Let's get into this week's message. Well, Happy New Year. And we're so excited that you are here worshiping the Lord with us. You certainly get a gold star for being at church on a federal holiday. Um, maybe not, maybe three quarters of a star, full star to the people who came at nine o'clock, even after staying up late. But hey, we're, we're so, so glad to have you here worshiping with us. Um, why don't we pray here before we dive into God's word together? Uh, Father God, we are so glad to be your people. And Lord, as we look to another year, Lord, we ask that you would be our God who leads and guides our way. This morning, Lord, as we consider your word, we ask that you would challenge us. We ask that you would change us, that through the hearing and teaching of your word, you would accomplish a good purpose in our lives. So God, we commit these moments to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we kind of we're planning to start the year with a new series, but we got a little bit off track in uh, December, and so we have one week left to finish up our Christmas series. So we're going to put our Santa hat back on and go back to wrap the Christmas series. And you remember, and it's been a long kind of holiday week, so just to kind of reset the stage for where we've been, our Christmas series was looking through the women who were named in the genealogy of Jesus. And so we've been tracing from Matthew chapter 1 these women that Matthew listed in the backstory of Jesus. And we asked the question, why were not named women like Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel, those great matriarchs of the faith? Why instead did we focus in on the outcasts and the outsiders, the scandalous and even at times the salacious and the stories of Tamar and Rahab and Ruth have showed us the grace and mercy of God, that there is no story that is too far gone that God cannot step in and write a wonderful ending. There is no one outside the realm of God's intervention. And so, That sets us up to consider the last woman who is listed in Jesus' genealogy, and that final woman is Bathsheba. Now, it's interesting. We're going to tell Bathsheba's story from 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, so you might want to get your Bible open to 2 Samuel 11 to start that story, but before we start there, I just want to highlight from Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy something a little bit different about Bathsheba than the other women who were listed All of the other women and really all the other people who are listed in that genealogy were listed by name. So we have David and we have Abraham and we have these women, Tamar and and Rahab. But then we come to Matthew 1.6 and we simply read the wife of Uriah. Why is this woman listed not by her name, but by who she was connected to? with? And I think the answer is, her story is different than the other stories. Tamar acted. Rahab acted. Ruth acted. Bathsheba was acted upon. Her story was primarily passive. In fact, 
Bathsheba isn't even the main character in her own story when it appears in the Bible in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And David's the main character. David acts. David sins. David is confronted. And David repents. And throughout all of this, Bathsheba's just kind of there in the background being acted upon. And so often we hear this story told from David's perspective. And told from David's perspective, this story is a wonderful look into the grace and mercy of God. That though sin be great, grace be greater still. And when we repent, the Lord can take our sin and remove it, and he can create in us a clean heart. But not only the guilty need restoration, Victims need restoration and a fresh start too. And because we're looking at the women who appear in Jesus' genealogy, what we're going to do this morning is look at this story not from David's perspective, but from Bathsheba's perspective. How do we understand a story of a person who has sinned against? How do we understand the story of a victim? You know, in order to tell the story this way, we kind of need to lay some theological groundwork. So I want you to understand, theologically speaking, that when it comes to sin, all of us are both perpetrators and victims. We all sin. We perpetrate sin. Because we perpetrate sin, we are guilty of sin, and we need forgiveness. That is the great message of the gospel, is it not? That on the cross, Jesus took our sin in our place. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He died the death we should have died, and as our substitute sacrifice, he removed the penalty of our sin. That is how the perpetrator has their sin forgiven and removed. It's a beautiful thing. We call that the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. And we never want to lose sight of that. But what I want to suggest this morning is that the atonement has aspects that go even beyond substitutionary atonement. It's never less than that, but something even more than that happened on the cross The cross is not just forgiveness for sinners, it's also the removal of shame, the removal of pain, the removal of the stain of the sins that have been committed against us, and as victims, we find healing in the cross as well. The cross forgives and the cross heals. That sets us up to tell the story of Bathsheba. We have a God who offers grace to sinners and grace to those who are wounded by the sins of others. I don't know what you're carrying as you walk into 2023. I don't know what stuff you've been carrying as you sit in church this morning. But I would hazard a guess that some of you are carrying some pretty heavy stuff. And some of the stuff you're carrying is probably stuff that has been done to you. And you've had some hard questions over the last years. Will this pain ever go away? Can I ever get over this horrible thing that has been done to me? Is there a possibility of a better ending 
than the chapters of my story that are already written. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to hear this main point. No matter what has happened to you, God can restore you. Maybe some of you are dealing with deep betrayal. You've been rejected and abandoned with no good explanation. Maybe some of you have been the victim of a gossip campaign about you, and you're not sure who's saying what or who's believing stuff that's not even accurate. Maybe some of you are the victims of horrible abuse, physical, verbal, emotional, spiritual. We don't know all the things that people deal with behind closed doors. But I hope, see, it's interesting, right? Like, we plan this to be the end of the Christmas series, but the more I think about it, what a great way to walk into the new year to have a message of God offers fresh start and fresh healing, and no matter what has happened to you, God can restore you. If that's you, Bathsheba's story should inspire hope. Uh, let, let's dive in. And 2 Samuel chapter 11, we're going to read the first few verses of the story. Here's what it says. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. Joab was kind of like the commander of his army. And his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, it's not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, uh, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, then she returned to her house. Okay, uh, let's start this story by talking about David's four mistakes. Mistake number one that David made. He didn't go to war. Did you see how the text started? In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David stayed home. Why did David stay home? Text doesn't tell us. We have no idea. Maybe he had some unused vacation time. Not exactly sure what was going on. But everybody is going out to fight, and David's like, I'm good. David's like, I'm going to invest in some me time. Now, here's the thing. When God's got a vision and a purpose for your life, when you choose to ignore that and walk in selfishness instead of what God has for you, bad things are bound to happen. So David's setting himself up for a disaster by not doing what God has called him to do. That was mistake number one. Here's mistake number two. Uh, David leered and he lusted. Some full voyeurism going on here. Um, But to understand what's going on, we got to talk about ancient Near East castles. Any of you study ancient Near East castles over your holiday week? I'm guessing not, but I'm going to do do a poll question anyways, because I think y'all are going to get this one right. Who here thinks that in the ancient Near East, the king's castle was the tallest building in town? Yeah, every hand, right? Right? So, if you're the king and you have the tallest building in town, and people shower on their roofs, is it a good idea to go for an afternoon stroll on your roof? Like, David didn't need to log on to the internet. He had castle rooftop access. 
And so David knew this is probably not where I'm supposed to be. He was supposed to be at war. He went there. Then he should have been in his like house, but he's chilling up on the roof where he's not supposed to be. So when he looks down, he had to knew, know that there was a very strong possibility that he was going to see something he shouldn't see. So what's his third mistake? He engaged his lust. Like the first thing he should have done is bounce his eyes, right? Like, I shouldn't be looking at that, but that's not what he does. No, he decides that he's going to call someone and ask about this person that he's creeping on. So he calls this guy and he's like, hey, can you run a background check on the woman who lives in this house? And I'm just imagining that conversation and the person's like, why do you want me to run a background check on this woman? And he's like, I was just walking up on the rooftop and I saw her showering and like, she's so pretty that it's aggressive. And so I, I need you to find out some information for me. And, and the, the guy comes back and he's like, um, she's married. And David's like, yeah, that's no problem. Which leads to my fourth thing that David did wrong, uh, David sexually abused her. Now, there's a lot of debate in people who read this story, like, did Bathsheba do anything wrong? Like, was this a David thing or was this a both thing? And I'm going to tell you my answer. I'm very, very strongly committed to this is a David thing. And I'm going to try and prove it to you from the text. Okay, why do I think that this was a David thing? Three reasons. First reason, look in verse four. She had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Um, why do we get that parenthetical note? Actually, there's a couple reasons. We'll come back to the second one. But the first reason we get that parenthetical note is because here's a lady who is so strictly trying to follow the law of the first five books of the Old Testament that she's actually bathing herself the way the Bible tells you to. When you're taking a bath the way the Bible tells you to, you're probably not in a mindset to immediately go commit immorality. Fair? Reason number two. Look at verse 27. Last sentence of chapter 11. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Does it say the thing that they had done? Does it say the thing that Bathsheba had done? No, it doesn't. It says the thing that David had done. David is the one who gets confronted in chapter 12. David is the one who sinned. Here's my last reason for saying this is a David thing. He was the king. He was supposed to use his power to protect those that he was called to shepherd and to love. He was supposed to care for those in his kingdom, but instead he used his power to take what he wanted did you see that in verse four? That, that word took is a key word. David didn't ask. David didn't woo. David took. I don't think Bathsheba had much choice. The king had all the power. What happens if you say no to the king? There's no concept in that culture of saying no to the king. You do what the king says, especially when you're a woman, someone typically overlooked in that culture. David initiated, David looked, David inquired, David sent, David took. So what happens next? Well, I told you that there were two reasons that we had that little parenthetical notation. The second reason that he tells us about the fact that she was purifying herself is because 
there's some foreshadowing going on in the text. The, the author wanted you to kind of have these red lights going off in your mind that she'd be doing that because this is a time when she'd be able to conceive. And so you should be noting that David is doing what David wants to do, but there's going to be something that's going to happen that's going to throw a wrench in the story, and we kind of get this ominous foreshadowing here, and it doesn't take us very long before verse 5 happens. The woman conceived, notice again how she's passive, notice again it's not her name, she's just simply called the woman. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David. So what happens? She sends Mori Povich to the king's castle, and he delivers this message to him. You are the father. Hear this. Bathsheba was in a bind. See, she knew one thing about her husband Uriah, and that was that he knew how to count. So he was off at war like all the king's people were, and Bathsheba's like, he's going to be like, one, two, three, nine. And he's going to be like, wait, wait, wait. Nine months ago, I was fighting the Ammonites. So like, how's there this baby getting born? And so there are some questions that are going to need answered. But David had totally used her. No concern for her purity. No concern for the bind he had put her in with her husband. David simply wanted and took. That's why I said, as our first point, that God offers new hope to the objectified and the used. Because Bathsheba was objectified and used. David was ready to discard her, but now he can't discard her because of what is happening. And so that leads us to the second point that we can pull from this story. And it's as though this story is a tragedy where one bad decision leads to another bad decision. One tragedy leads to the next tragedy. So not only is there new hope for the objectified and the used, there's also new hope for the shame and the sin-wrecked. Obviously, Bathsheba's shamed. She's pregnant, and it's not her husband's baby. Uh, but David ignores what's happening to her and focuses on how this will reflect on him. Uh, can I just pause right there and say this? One of the hardest aspects of being the victim of someone else's sin is realizing how little you mean to that person. They tell you to move on. They've already moved on. And you feel like you can never move on. Because this thing has defined you. This thing is eating at you. And they're just like chilling and living their best life. It's incredibly ironic to me that in Psalm chapter 73, we read these words. The, the Psalms consider the songbook belonging to David. Well, we, we read about the wicked people. And the author of Psalm 73 says, the wicked are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. And isn't that the burning agony that those who have been hurt and abused feel? They're like, I'm living with the consequences and the fallout, and you're living with none of it. You hurt, you wounded, and you've moved on, and you're acting like all this stuff that is happening to me means nothing. And one of the hardest things about being hurt 
by someone else's sin is the desire for them to feel the weight of it. And I'm telling you, you can live forever with the desire that the other person feel the same things and the same weight that you feel and be crushed by the weight of it because they may never acknowledge it. They may never feel the weight of it. And only God can be your source of healing. If your expectation for healing is the person who wounded me will respond the right way, there may never be healing. But the beautiful hope of the gospel is this. The healing of Jesus Christ does not depend on another person responding the right way. The healing of Jesus Christ is available to anyone who will rush to the foot of the cross. There is hope for the shamed and the sin-wrecked. David goes into fix-it mode. His plan A is to trick Uriah into thinking that the baby is his. Uh, verse six, so David sent word to Joab, um, uh, send me Uriah the Hittite. So he, he, he's like, hey, general, send, send this dude home. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Don't you love people who are trying to cover things up and they're schmoozing and they're like trying to act like everything's all cool? Uh, verse eight, then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. That is a really nice biblical way of David suggesting that Uriah connect with his wife. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king because David's in full schmoozer mode. And he's like giving the guy money and go home and spend some time with your wife. Verse nine, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. Why? Because those who fought in battle for the Lord from the people of God in Israel believed that Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 9 to 14, you can look up those verses later, but Deuteronomy chapter 23 is some rules for purity for people in warfare. And they were interpreted in that time as soldiers should abstain from certain aspects of marital connection so that they can show that they're fully dedicated to the task that the Lord has for them on the battlefield. And so David is not on the battlefield. Uriah was on the battlefield, but David is trying to get Uriah to do whatever will cover David's tracks. And you start to see here that David was being completely dishonorable and Uriah was completely showing him up by acting with honor. And David's not done with his plan A. He's like, okay, maybe I can still get the guy. So, so Uriah sleeps at the king's house. He won't go home. He wants to show that he's fully dedicated to the Lord and the cause of battle. And verse 10, when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why didn't you go down to your house? And Uriah spoke about the ark of the Lord and purity. And at verse 12, David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So, so David's like, okay, Uriah, have another vacation day. Uh, so Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next of verse 13, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And so, so David's like throwing this party, and he's like, hey, somebody keep, somebody make sure that Uriah's wine glass is always full, and maybe top it off with vodka instead of Merlot, because we want to make sure this guy gets super hammered. And notice what happens. Even in his inebriated state, Uriah shows more honor, more dignity, more spiritual worthiness than David in his sobriety. David's in full cover-up mode, and he's trying to trick Uriah, and Uriah will have none of it. 
So Uriah does not go down to be with his wife, and so David moves to plan B. If David can't trick Uriah into thinking that the baby is his, then maybe he can trick other people into believing that the baby is Uriah's, which is hard to do if Uriah's alive. So notice what happens of verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. So David gives a letter to Uriah. He's like, hey, take this to the general. And so Uriah certainly must have thought that the reason he was invited home is to be a courier for the king. What a great honor to relay a message from the king to the front lines of battle. But Uriah has no idea that the message he's carrying is his own death warrant. David's not communicating military instructions. David's not encouraging the people to remain true to the Lord. David's trying to cover up the tracks of his own sin. Verse 15, in the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. What did he say? There's gonna be this big battle. Make sure that in the toughest part of the fighting, Uriah's there. And then uh, give all the guys in the army a retreat signal. But don't tell Uriah what the retreat signal is. Sound the retreat signal while he's there and everybody else fall back so that he's left one on 100. Let's get him dead. And that's exactly what happened. So Bathsheba watches her husband get killed to cover up this coerced one-night encounter. Verse 26. When the wife of Uriah you see the language here? Man, like, it's all stuff that's happening to her. She, her name is just covered and covered. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. Like, just in case you start to think that maybe she was using this as an excuse to get into the king's house, the author tells us that she cried over her husband because she loved him. She was torn up. I want you to understand how wrecked her life was by the sin that was committed against her. She was forced into doing something that she probably wasn't looking to do. She was forced to carry the baby of a man that wasn't her husband. And then she watches her own husband get killed to cover the whole thing up. And I just wonder what was going through her mind at that point. Well, we know what was going through David's mind. David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. David's like, you know what? Now that your husband's gone, you can come be my fifth wife. Lucky you. Sounds like some ridiculous sister wives episode. And Bathsheba has to smile and pretend like she's excited to walk down the aisle again. Was she angry? Hurt? confused? The text doesn't tell us. It leaves us to speculate. She's passive. Things just keep happening to her. But hear this, God did not forget her plight. God saw what was happening to her. When stuff happens and happens and happens, we begin to wonder, does God even care? Reminds me of the story of Henry David our Henry Wadsworth Longsfellow. Familiar with him, great American poet? Here's the story of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. His wife was trying on a dress one day, and back in 
the later 1800s, the dresses women would tie on would be incredibly tight. And so she was squeezing into this dress, and while she was trying the dress on and stuck in it, the dress caught fire. And so he tried to put the fire out, but she ended up burning alive in front of him. And so significant were his wounds that he couldn't even attend her funeral. Not long after that, this happened in the 1860s, he got a communication in 1863 that his oldest son, who was fighting in the Civil War, had been shot and was laying gravely wounded on the verge of death. And so on Christmas Day, 1863, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow sat down, picked up a pen, and wrote these words. Maybe you've heard them. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men, and thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men, till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each, bleak, then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. You'd understand if he left it there, but he had one last verse to write. Because when you encounter the goodness of God, you can't stop in tragedy. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. When you're hurt and wounded and lying helpless, your only hope is that God will intervene. When Henry Wadsworth Longfellow encountered the truth of God's goodness, it inspired new hope for him. And that is the only hope you have when you've been hurt and wounded as the victim of other people's sin. But see, there's a big choice you all got to make. And this is the key decision. Where will you put God? Will you view God as part of the problem? God, you could have stopped this. You should have prevented this. God, you're part of the reason I'm going through this. And you can leave God in the box of your part of the problem. But there is no hope and there is no healing if you leave God in that box. The only hope you have is to throw yourself on the mercy of God, to believe that the gospel is true and that healing is real, and to see God not as your problem, but as your Savior, to see God not as the cause, but the solution to the things that plague you, which leads us to our third point. There can be new meaning for a life defined by one terrible thing. 
Bathsheba's life was defined by that one awful night. But God was about to rewrite the story. It started when the prophet Nathan showed up, took some hootspah to confront the king. But the prophet Nathan tells David a story. You can read here in 2 Samuel chapter 12. He tells the story of a rich man and a poor man, and the rich man had a bunch of animals. The poor man, well, here's what it says in verse 3. Uh, the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, and he brought it up, and it grew with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Uh, verse 4, a traveler came to town to visit the rich dude. And the rich guy was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare from the guest who had come to him. But he took, aka stole, the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Uh, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Verse seven, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Bathsheba was kidnapped and stolen like that precious little lamb. And Nathan continued, this is what God said. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house. I, I, I gave you your master's wives. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. If this were too little, I would have added to you much more. But you have despised the word of the Lord. You struck down Uriah the Hittite and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Like you wanted what you couldn't have and so you took it. Amazingly, David responded well. Amazingly, David repented. Psalm chapter 51 is the song that David wrote in response to being confronted by Nathan. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. See, the reason David was a man after God's own heart is not because David was sinless. Like David did some stuff. But David responded by throwing himself on the grace and mercy of God. David had no hope but to look to the coming cross to the grace that would be available to sinners. And David's story was restored because he came to God in faith and asked the Lord to pour out his grace even on this awful, ugly sin. But we're telling the story from Bathsheba's perspective. So David continues talking with Nathan and Nathan says to him, even though David says, verse 13, I've sinned against the Lord, Nathan said to David, uh, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. The punishment for David's sin is that he didn't get to keep the child that was conceived in sin. But my question is, how did that make Bathsheba feel? Like, does that not sound like the most unfair thing ever? Like, she's carried this child in her womb for nine months. Like any mother, surely she's grown to love this child and has longed for there to be some hope to come from this child that can give some meaning to all the horrible things she's gone through. And then to be told the child's gonna die, it screams unfair. 
And maybe there's something in you that screams unfair when a victim loses friends or a job because of a smear campaign perpetrated against them. Maybe there's something in you that screams unfair when people who are framed go to prison even though they're innocent. Maybe there's something in you that screams unfair when children go through life questioning if they're ever worthy of love because their parents were too selfish to show them love. Maybe there's something in you that screams unfair when people who are abandoned struggle to pay their bills. Maybe there's something in you that screams unfair when people who have been abused over and over and over suffer PTSD and can't move on with their life. And maybe Bathsheba's story screams unfair in a similar way. But there is new meaning for a life defined by one terrible thing. And how can that happen? Peter tells us, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, say this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. And you're like, wait, 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 wait. Are you telling a victim that they need to humble themselves? Like, haven't they been lowered enough but here's what, here's what I'm saying. Humble yourself in the sense of, so often we think, man, I know exactly how this story needs to end. I know what needs to happen here. I know what the solution is. And even if you're a victim, humbling yourself is saying, I, know, I, I don't know. The only thing I know is that I need God to do something. And here's how you humble yourself. This is why there's a comma, going into verse seven, humble yourself, how? Casting all your cares and anxieties on the Lord because he cares for you. Like throw yourself on the mercy of God because he can rewrite your story and he can give you hope when you feel hopeless. He can give you a new start when you feel like your story's over. The opposite of leaning to God is trying to fill the hole that has been ripped into your heart with things that cannot heal it. And how many people spend their days trying to numb their heart with substances, with cheap relationships, or with unrestrained rage, or perfectionism, or withdrawal, or they try to do all these things to fix what's broken, and it doesn't fix anything. The only solution is cast yourself on God. He cares for you. See, here's the beautiful thing about the cross. The cross forgives and heals. I think that's why in Leviticus chapter 16 on the day of atonement, there were two animals. They would slaughter one as a sacrifice, a substitution for the people's sin. But that second animal, the priest would put his hand over that animal as though to transfer all the shame and all the pain and all the junk onto that animal. And then they would send that animal away banished to run forever in the wilderness, as though to say that junk has no place here any longer. God has removed your stuff. God brings healing to people who have been hurt by sin. There's healing at the end of Bathsheba's story. Fast forward to verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. A couple things I want you to notice. First thing, notice that her name is used. Notice, secondly, that David finally treats her like a person, as though her emotions matter. Finally treats her like a loving husband, as a beloved wife. 
part of Bathsheba's healing came because David was fixed. And then David went into her. She bore a son and he called his name Solomon and the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. And, and, and Nathan gave Solomon a second name. Did you know Solomon had two names? His second name was Jedidiah, given by the prophet Nathan. Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. That was gonna be his life experience to be loved by the Lord. Maybe his mother experienced a little bit of that as well, to know that she was beloved of the Lord, that her story didn't stop on that awful night, but her story would continue. And as one who had been used, abused, and discarded, she was now going to be part of the legacy and lineage of the Savior, that she was going to be one of the mothers in the family line of Jesus Christ, Her life had meaning she never could have anticipated because God was writing new hope into her story. And if God can write new hope into that story, he can write new hope into any story. I'll close with this. Maybe you're thinking, you know, you sound kind of passionate about this stuff. Is it a little personal at all? Yeah, yeah, it's personal. I grew up hanging out with a bunch of youth group kids. Several of our churches would hang out together. There was a girl who went to a church, a town over from where I grew up, but our youth groups did a bunch of stuff together, knew her super well. What I didn't know until years and years later is what was happening behind closed doors in her life. See, when she was 29 years old, she tried to kill herself. The police came. She said, my husband tried to kill me. So they locked her husband up. She tried to kill herself again. They realized it probably wasn't her husband. Committed her for psychological treatment and finally it came out. She said, I've been having an affair with my youth pastor and it started when I was 14 years old. Police did an investigation, found out that he had been abusing her and five other girls that he had officiated her wedding. And after officiating her wedding, he and his wife bought a house across the street from where the newlyweds bought a house, that she'd mothered two children, but only one of them was from her actual husband. Like, how do you, how, how do you recover from that? And I just remember praying for her. And, and I, I mean, I didn't even know how to pray. Like, how do you pray for that? And just like, God, do something here. And the guy who did it, the youth pastor, was sentenced to 40 years in prison. But my question was, how can her life get rebuilt? God, God, can you do something? And I'd been praying for her for a while. And then one day I was scrolling Facebook. And a guy who I'd graduated from high school with, actually, he he graduated the year before I did. Um, We were were friends from youth group. And I saw on his picture, or I saw on his uh, profile, wedding pictures that this awesome guy had married this girl. Her husband had been done with it. She'd been left to fend for herself. But I saw that there was new hope. And I saw the Bible verses that they were quoting. And I saw how in their wedding ceremony, they were talking about, we have a God who restores. 
we have a God who gives a fresh start. And this story isn't over. And I'm telling you, every time I see them post stuff on Facebook, there's just a little part of me that cheers. And I'm like, oh God, you can do something great. See, I don't know what you're going through. But I know in a church this size, we've got some people who've gone through some stuff. And so maybe this morning as we get ready to sing about the Lamb of God, you might want to pray to the Lord and ask him to do some healing in your life. Maybe there's been this big thing in your life and you don't want to carry it into 2023 with you. You just want to give it to the Lord and say, God, heal it. Maybe it's not you. Maybe there's someone in your family, someone you're close to, and you know that they're carrying something and you just want to pray on their behalf. But we have a God who can give new hope to those who have been wrecked by sin. Sin doesn't get the final word because Jesus got the final word on the cross. Thank you for listening to the Highland Sermon Podcast. If you would like to learn more about Highland Community Church, please feel free to visit our website, www.highlandchurchmn.com. Our website link is also available in the show notes of today's episode, along with links to our social media pages. Thank you for listening, and always remember this, you are loved.